What is the biggest risk that you have ever taken and has cost you in life? What is the biggest risk that you have taken? What is it that has cost you possibly the most in life? Like what risk did you take? Maybe what risk did I even take that could radically impact your life in the moment but also in the future? And what was the cost? Or maybe for some of us, why did you avoid it? 1519, there's this man, his name is Hernan Cortez. And in this moment, he takes a big risk. He sets out with 600 of his men and they land on the shore of Veracruz, what is now Mexico. And once they land, they unload the ships. They get everything all set. It's this new territory. They have no idea what's in store. And his first command is very simple, but it's a big risk with a lot of cost. He orders his men to burn the ships. Now, I didn't live in 1519. And I don't know what that would have been like to just show up to a random spot with no idea what's going to happen. But I do know that burning the ships was costly. He has 600 of his men. And when he orders them to burn the ships, it's a very simple reality that sets in for his men. There's no turning back. It's not win or go home. It's win or die. <laughs> This is a big risk. And here's what happens is Cortez and his 600 men would stare directly into the eyes, into the face of the indigenous people of Veracruz, and they would have to battle their way to victory. The mindset would have had to change in that moment. You see, when they sat foot on this land, they were drastically outnumbered. They were drastically out-armored. They were actually outmatched by all accounts possible, except for one, except for one. They didn't have an option of fleeing. They didn't have an option of returning home. It was win or die. Nothing else would be on the table. What's interesting is that Cortez and his army ended up winning the battle. But what's even more intriguing is that he wouldn't just win the first battle. He would win the next, the next. All the battles for the next two years as he claimed the land and he claimed victory over the resources in the area. They would set up home now in this, this place. But there was a risk that had to be taken on Cortez's part. As a leader, he had to choose to pay the cost for this risk. His whole life was on the line, literally. But not only his life, his reputation, the trust of his men. The buy-in of his men is on the line in this moment that he demands them to burn the ships. It's go all in or lose it all. There's nothing in between. But I think he could see the bigger picture. I think he could see the bigger possibility, the bigger payout maybe, where his men maybe couldn't. He saw the bigger potential. 
that by doing this, it changes something. It changes the mindset. It changes maybe even your posture. Because when you go all in and you have no way to return, you have no other option but to just be devoted and to go for it. So what is one of the biggest risks that you have taken and the cost that you have paid? What if there's a deeper question to that? What is the biggest risk you've taken for the kingdom of God and costs you have paid? And if we're being honest, I think there's some of us sitting in this room or even on a couch at home, wherever you might be, that when that question comes up, what is the biggest risk for the kingdom of God that you have taken? Our answer is, I haven't. I haven't. I've played it safe. Uh, I haven't trusted his will, his plan fully and his ways because it scares me. What's interesting about this is we dove into a story last week in the Old Testament in, in 1 Kings 19. And we dove into the story of a prophet named Elijah. And in this story, we saw Elijah get this call from God. We, we see Elijah have this conversation with God and God tells him to go and do these things. And one of them was to go anoint Elisha to be a successor, to take over. And if you remember, we, we talked about the mantle, this coat that Elijah walks up to the young Elisha, places it on him, and then Elisha has this moment where he starts his conversation with Elijah, very brief. Elisha knew what the mantle meant, knew what this cloak meant. It meant that Elijah was anointing and appointing him to be his successor. But there was a deeper meaning behind that. This was the work of God. This was God's will. And, and we picked up in this moment where there's some questions to be had. 1 Kings 19, 19 through 20, we're going to read it again. This is what it says. So Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, First, let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. But Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what you have done, or what I have done to you. You see, Elijah gets this mantle placed on him, and his first thought is what? I got to go tell mommy and daddy I'm leaving. And so he goes to run back to kiss mom and dad goodbye, and Elijah reminds him that God has anointed him. Not Elijah. God is working in this moment. And we know that Elijah is walking in obedience to what God has laid upon his heart. And what's interesting is in this moment, in this text, where we have stopped so far, we have yet to discover Elisha's answer. Remember we talked about that tension. The tension of, what am I going to do? Do I just stay where I'm at? If you remember Elisha comes from a very wealthy family. It's comfortable there. We see Elijah find Elisha plowing the fields with the 12th team of oxen. Most families had one team. Elisha has 12. They're pretty wealthy. You know what I'm saying? He's pretty comfortable. What's he going to do? Do I stay? Comfort. I have everything made. I don't got to worry about retirement. I don't have to worry about a house. I don't have to, I'm, I'm good. Or does Elisha decide to, to follow God, to trust Elijah 
and the call that God is putting on his, on his life. It's interesting in this moment because I think we find ourselves in this posture too. If I'm going to be very honest, speaking as a millennial, can I do that for a minute? As a millennial, we find ourselves in this posture a lot. And we get a lot of, like junk for it. Because there's half of my generation that are very comfortable sitting in mom and dad's basement playing video games and not having to work. But there's another half of my generation who are going hard, trying to make the best they can. I find us in this similar posture. And what's more interesting is when I look at take a step back and I look at generations, not only mine, but even the younger ones before or after me, I find us in the generation looking ahead to see what generations are before me. And not only what they've done, but I'm also to see, looking to see what the generations before me, who's looking back? Who's looking back and saying, hey, come with me. Come with me. Because I think that's part of the story. Elijah is this older man, an older prophet. And he walks up to this young Elisha, this young man. And he's inviting him to journey in life together. He's inviting him to walk together literally and figuratively in life. And grow and learn and develop together. Younger generations that are here watching online, whatever it might be. How are we doing with looking ahead at the generations that have gone before us to say, what can I glean and learn from you? Especially when it comes to the faith. What can I learn about devotion and loyalty? What can I learn about sacrifice? What can I learn about being in the word daily and, and honoring God daily in my life? What can I learn from the generations that have gone before me? But generations that are older than me, Who in your life needs you maybe just to look at them and say, would you journey with me? Would you walk with me? I'd love to pass down some things that God has showed me over life. Because they're hungry. Believe it or not, there's generations, there's students right now in middle school and high school, there's college-age students and young adults that are hungry for someone to put their arm around them, to place a mantle upon them and say, come with me and let's journey together. And I believe that's what Elijah and Elisha is happening right now. And look at Elisha's response. Verse 21. Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. This young man does the only thing within himself that he believes is the answer. I'm going to kill my oxen. Now remember... His family is pretty wealthy, but killing a pair of oxen is a really big cost. We understand that, right? And not only killing the oxen, but what does he do to the plow? He dismantles it and he sets it on fire. He's literally in the middle of the field, takes out his knife, dagger, whatever it is, 
cuts them up and builds a bonfire. And then he says, we're going to have a party. And here's what the party is. Mom, dad, I love you, but I'm out. This is a going away party. Because he's going to go and learn the ways of Elijah. Because Elijah put his arm around him, put his mantle around him and said, come with me and let God tell you what what he's going to do in your life. Come learn. Come grow. Come be together. Elisha burns his ships, essentially. There's no going back from that. When he leaves... He's saying, I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm going to trust this. I'm going to trust this. He kisses his mom and his dad goodbye, and he sets his past life on fire. He's trusting the will and the way of God. And he's trusting and walking with that alongside a prophet. And I want to be very clear. It's not that Elijah in this moment, it's not like he's turning away from something that's bad and turning to something that's good. What he was doing, working with his family and everything, was not bad. That was, it was good. It was still good. But God had more in store. It's not him turning from bad to good. No, no, no. Like, this was a turn from a comforting past to trusting God's future. This was a turn, a moment where Elisha turns from being in a comfortable moment in his family, working the fields, plowing the fields. He has his trusted team of oxen and his plow. He's turning from the trusted, comfortable sense of his life to trusting God's radical will for his life, which, by the way, is still unknown for him in this moment. It's not like Elijah put this mantle on him and then goes, bro, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to make six figures. You're going to have a great 401. Like retirement, don't worry about it. House, don't worry about it. You're going to get a Tesla. It's going to be great. Everything's set. It's not like that at all. It's, remember how Elijah did this. He puts his cloak on him, and then he walks away. And Elijah chases after him. It's this moment where Elisha is trusting God's will even when he doesn't see the full picture. This is a big moment. And I think we can glean and learn so much from it. I think in this moment, Elisha realizes in his heart that God has more in store for him than he can even realize in this moment. And if we're honest, we want more in our lives. Our culture has conditioned us to that. Our our mindset has always been more, more, more. Right? It's always been that. And here's what I love, though. He's trusting the more without even knowing what the more is. See, for us, I'm just going to speak about it, right? For us, it's I want more money. I want more fame. I want more recognition. I want more security. I want more praise. I want more things. I want more fill in the blank. But here's where it gets interesting. Oftentimes, we want it on our terms and our timing. You feel me? I want more money, and I want it now. I want more security, and I want it without the cost. I want more fame, but I don't want to do the work. (laughs) 
I want more praise, but I don't want to prepare. I want more things, but I just want it given to me. Don't ask me to actually earn it. You know what I'm saying? I want more, and I want it now. Because tomorrow will not do. And we try to operate our lives with this idea that we can determine the timing and we can determine the more. But here's what's interesting. What's interesting is this, is that we always want more, but we don't want it with a cost. We want the 30 minutes of fame without the 30 years of preparation. And if I'm being very honest with us, I think this is one of the most harmful attitudes that we have seen being operated under in our world today. Because essentially what we're saying is we don't trust God's more even when we can't see the next step. So it leads me to the question of what do you need to release right now and trust his future in? What is it that you've been holding on to and saying, God, I want more, but I know you're going to ask me to release this, but I don't want to. What is it that you're trying to control the more in? What do you need to release right now and trust his future in? Essentially, it's that other, another way to put it is, what do you need to burn right now? What part of your past do you need to burn right now so that there's no turning back? There's no turning back. And here's what's so intriguing to me about this. This story is a story in the Old Testament. It's a story about this prophet who finds his successor, and we, we read all about their journeys together. And ultimately, we learn that Elisha does double the amount of work of what Elijah does. And it's this beautiful thing, beautiful thing of like when they're journeying together, and Elijah is taken up into heaven, and Elisha fully embraces the mantle. And he walks in the confidence of what God has done. It's this beautiful thing. And we learn all about this, but this is not a story that's so far removed. I love that Jesus himself references this story. I love that in Luke 9, Jesus references this story. He's calling one of his disciples. And Jesus uses those famous two words, follow me. Follow me. But this man said, first let me go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus responds, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. He's, he's essentially referencing Elisha's story. It's this moment where Jesus talks about the prophets. He talks about a story that these men and women would know. And he brings it right back into their current context. And I think he does the same for us. Because when I think about plowing, I'm going to give away a hint first off, by the way. I'm clearly not a farmer, okay? I don't own a single pair of cowboy boots, never have, probably never will, okay? I, I know, right? Um, I just, plowing for me, it just doesn't seem like me, you know what I'm saying? But like when I think about plowing in straight lines, 
I can't even draw a straight line, let alone plow a straight line. But these guys, they would learn how to plow a straight line, and it'd be very simple. As they would stand behind this plow, they would focus on something directly ahead of them. Most of the time, it was a tree or a post. And they would constantly focus on that. And as they walked, they would focus, and as they would walk in, they were going right into it. And that's how they would get the straightest lines that they could possibly. See, because if you're plowing, and if I'm looking here, but if I look back, what happens? I lose focus. I steer where I stare. I steer where I stare. Listen to that one. If I'm staring right here, I'm steering right into it. But if I am staring off to the side, I slowly start to what? Drift. Woo! Woo! This is exactly what we see in our lifestyles, right? In the call of God. If we are steering and staring directly at God, we're going to walk where? Directly into his presence. But when we steer and stare off into the distance, off somewhere else, I start to drift away from what God has for my life. You steer where you stare. What are you staring at? What are you staring at? Because as you're plowing and as you're staring and steering, there's moments where you might hit a, a rut and it might get snagged. There's moments where you may hit a rock in the ground and it may be tough. But if that line must be straight, what do you have to do? You have to persevere through. You have to figure out how to keep that line straight, how to keep moving forward. And that's what they were known for, these plowmen. They were known for ones who held on and persevered through it. They continued to try and walk that straight line. Wherever they stared, they were steering into. How are we doing with that? From one generation to the next, how are we doing with that? What's interesting to me is over the course of these past few weeks, I've been thinking about this type of message. And I gotta be honest with you, like there's there was an alarming a few years ago, an alarming rate of millennials and younger generations leaving the church. We we understand this, right? And what's interesting is that there was this, this alarming rate of these generations leaving the church. And people were like, why is this happening? Like, what's been going on? You know, generations before us, we've never really seen this before. I think part of it was, if I'm being honest with you, I, I think part of it was, as a younger generation, we've grown up in a time where everything is demanding our attention. You guys feel me? Not just, not just the big things, the big screens, but the little things that fit in your pocket. The things that go on your, your wrist. All these things are demanding my eyes, my attention. Generations before me, my grandfather, he's 95, 96. That dude still doesn't know how to use a cell phone. Preach, right? And he's totally okay with it. But what he did know and what he does know and his generation knows is this. They know exactly where to put their focus when things get tough. He knows exactly where to go when things get rough. 
He knows exactly how to persevere through hard times. And he knows exactly who to stare to and stare at. Us younger generations need that. We need to see that. We need to know that. And we have to apply that. Our younger generations, we have to. In older generations, we need you to model that still to this day. We need you to be open and honest and talk to us about your plan of how do you get into this word? How do you get the word into you? How have you made it past 10 years of marriage? Shoot, how have you made it past one year of marriage? Right? How, how do you do this thing called life? We have this verb in our lingo as millennials, adulting. It is like the worst thing that has happened to me in my life. How do you do this thing? I need generations before me to continue to speak life into me, speak moments into me, speak wisdom into me so that I can apply it. And I need to accept it. We're not off the hook. We have to apply that and accept that, right? And it brings me to this moment, and I probably will never forget this moment. It was a moment where Courtney and I were sitting in a sanctuary of a church. I believe it was on Wednesday or Thursday night. And we were at this, um, this training, this training for foster parents. <clears throat> and the training um, was a panel discussion. And what was intriguing was this training was actually five black men sitting on the stage and then if you looked out into the congregation, it was mostly all white foster parents. It was awesome. Uh, and the training was literally called, like, How to Raise Young Black Men. And what was intriguing to me about this is, is as I'm learning about this, because we have, you, you guys clearly saw, if this is your first time, um, I got two boys who are the most beautiful boys in the world. I might be slightly jealous, or sorry, biased. And jealous. They have great hair. Um, but, but they don't look exactly like me or my, my beautiful wife. Right? Pretty evident. And I'll never forget this moment sitting there. And this man, they just asked this question of like, what is one nugget, nugget that you want these people to know? He was the second last guy. He had long dreads. He was a businessman. And he sat quietly as the others kind of sat there and talked. And then it came to him and he said, my 15-year-old taught me this. It was very simple. I can't become what I don't see. And he started to talk about this moment where he went to pick up his 15-year-old foster son. He went to pick up his foster son in the middle of the day during business hours. So he had to leave his work to pick up his son, this foster son, because he was causing a whole bunch of issues at school, raising havoc and everything, right? And it's not the first time. And so this foster dad, this businessman, looks at me and he's like, what is going on? Anybody, anybody's been there, right? Uh, how about like this morning? Like, what is happening? What are you doing? Have I not told you to listen to what I've told you to do? Like, 
there's this moment where this, this man looks at this 15-year-old and he's like, what is happening? What's going on? Why do you keep having these issues? Why do you keep fighting? Why can't you just do all this stuff and just listen and behave? And there's this moment where this 15-year-old sitting in the front seat of this businessman's car and he looks at him and he utters those words. And you can imagine he says it with an attitude, right? Man, I can't become what I don't see. And this businessman starts talking about the moment where he learned that he had to just be quiet in that moment. And it hit him. After a few short seconds, he said, what do you mean by that? He said, I can't become successful when I have no idea what success looks like. I can't become a good father when I've never seen that. I can't have a steady job when I, everything around me is all about employment. I can't have a healthy lifestyle. I can't become what I don't see. And for this young 15-year-old, the only thing in his mind, in, in the brokenness of his world and the brokenness of a system and the brokenness of culture, was I can only achieve brokenness. And as this businessman is driving, he said, I took the rest of the day off, and they literally went out for lunch, and they started to talk about that. And this foster dad, who, may I add, was a single man fostering multiple teenage boys, he started to have these standing lunch dates, essentially, with his foster sons. And what he would do during these moments is he would speak life and affirm them and who they are and who God has made them to be. He radically changed the narrative. Son, you can be successful. Let me tell you how. You have a work ethic like I've never seen anybody have before. You are determined. And if you apply that to your schoolwork, if you apply that to your job, you will climb the ranks at your position and you will be successful. And one day when you get married and you have a kid, you will be a great father. Because I see how you tenderly love our neighbor kids. When the younger ones ask you to play basketball, you, you enjoy playing with them. You navigate their ages and you, you love on them. You're going to be a great father one day. You have what it takes. This man starts to affirm them. And, and what is so incredible is he, he started to, for himself, chunk out time where he would take these young boys out to a lunch. And he would start to develop and walk with them. He would literally put his arm around them and have conversations with them about the hard things in life. How do you navigate what's happening in our world right now? Let's talk about it. How do I navigate getting a job? Let's, let's talk about it. Man, I want to apply for this job, but it says I have to show up in a nice shirt and tie and slacks. I don't have any of that. Let's go get you hooked up. He literally puts his arm around him. This man, he, he walks and journeys in life with them and he's pouring into them. He's affirming them. He's mentoring them. He's growing with them. And ultimately, ultimately he's sharing his faith with them. 
as they talk about, man, I don't know if I have what it takes. Man, let me tell you about a story about this young dude named David. He was this little dude, and I mean like little, little. But he fought this big old giant. Let me tell you how that went. He won. You think he fully understood that he had what? No, he probably had doubts about himself. But that's okay, because he had God with him. You know that if you trust God in your life, that you can conquer things that you've never thought you could conquer before? You can break generational addictions and habits and sins. You know that in the name of Jesus, you can overcome, you can overcome your addictions and your habits and your, your hurtful things in your life? You know that God can help you heal relationships and you can become not just a great father, but a great mentor for young kids as well? You know that you could do that? There's this moment where he's sharing this story, and in me, I just started to get wrecked. Because it was a moment where I knew that there was men and women before me who spoke those words into me. Who to this day still speak those words into me. And I'm so thankful. I'm thankful because... They're journeying with me. You see, the story of Elijah and Elisha, it, it brings me to one simple question, really. Who is journeying with us? No matter if you're like the Elijah in the story, an older generation, a seasoned vet, or maybe you're like the young Elisha in the story. You're preparing to get married. You're dating. You're exploring who you are. You're figuring out your identity. Whatever one you are, that question is still so relevant for us. Who is journeying with us? Who is pouring into you? Who are you putting under your wing? See, in order for us to walk in what and where God is leading us to, we might have to eliminate options of returning to an old past life. We might have to burn the ships. In order to journey with others, what ships are you willing to burn today? What things are you willing to set fire on in your past that you cannot turn back to? And a lot of times what I love is that Christ doesn't ask us to do something that he himself hasn't done before. Christ left heaven, which was per perfect, by the way, to come here to our world, <laughs> earth, and live in it. He left and modeled this. He left perfection and he came here to give us redemption. And he journeyed with the Father and the Spirit, and they were navigating and guiding him and, and shepherding and walking with him as he was here. And then when he leaves, when he leaves, he commands these 12 young guys to go and do the same thing he did, to mentor others, to grow with others, to bring others along. These young guys left great fishing jobs to follow him. They left luxury of money and security and tax collecting to follow this radical rabbi. They left it all for him. There was no going back. As we close today, as Josh comes up, there's this moment where I started to think about Hernan Cortez again. 
1519. When he gave that command, I'm sure that in that moment, his men thought maybe one of two things. One, this dude is absolutely crazy. What am I doing here? Or two, this dude is absolutely crazy. And I'm in. When he ordered the men to burn the ships, he, he burnt his way out too. He had no private jet waiting for him. He didn't have his private sea dew waiting for him to escape if things went bad. He burnt his only option of returning out to. He was in it with him. He was in it with him. And by doing that, I believe it bought him some leadership equity with his men. They could physically see that he's in it with them. He led them well, victory after victory. And he showed them success in battle, but also in life. He was willing to pay a price. He was willing to go all in. I think for many of us today, God has been laying on our hearts a call that we're supposed to walk in. And for most of us, I truly believe that God has given us a name of a person who we are called to journey with in life. I radically believe that. That God has appointed in somebody in our minds, in our lives, whether it's older or younger than us, that we are called to walk in life with hand in hand. So who is it? Who is journeying with you? Or who do you need to start journeying with life with today? Father, as we just come before you, we we just simply pause right now. We pause to give you space and moments where you can just speak radically to our hearts, to our spirits. Father, I ask right now in this moment that you would bring the face of that person to our mind, of who you are calling us to walk with. God, for those in the the older generations, Lord, I ask that right now that you would give that, that name and that face to them right now, Lord. And then you would already start to prepare what you are calling them to speak into them, into that person. Start to arrange opportunities, Lord, for them to meet, to grow, and to journey together in life. And for the younger generation, Lord, I ask that you would begin to not just put the name and the, the, the face of the person who you are calling them to maybe reach out to and walk with, Lord, but give them questions to ask them about life. How do you navigate marriage? <clears throat> How do you navigate children? How do you navigate finances? How do you navigate life? Give them opportunities to ask these questions to an older generation and then give them moments where they can just receive it, Lord. Receive the wisdom and the love of the generation that has gone before them. Father, we know that your heart is for people to be with each other across generational lines. And not just to know each other, Lord, but to journey together in life. And so, Father, we pray that right now that you would already prepare to do that.
you would break down barriers and hurdles across generational lines so that we can journey hand in hand, arm around each other in pursuing you. So Father, we just pray this in your name. We pray this in a name that is above all else. The name of Jesus, our Savior, who modeled this for us. And so Lord, we give you everything we have. Today, tomorrow, always. Amen.